Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am going to cover now Acts chapter 28, verses 11 through 31. This will finish up the book of Acts. Our context is this. Paul is on his journey from Caesarea to Rome. In Caesarea, he had gone through two trials before Roman procurators there, Felix and Festus. He also had a hearing before the local Jewish king, Herod Agrippa II. He had been sent there by Claudius Lysias, the Roman commander in Jerusalem, when Paul inadvertently started a Jewish riot because of the Jewish pharisaical bigots there who accused Paul falsely of being against Jewish laws and against the temple and so forth and against the Jewish people. So the Roman officials could not turn him loose because they knew that the Jews would be mad at him, angry with him. But on the other hand, they couldn't convict him because they knew he was innocent and he was a Roman citizen. So they just let him sit in jail. So Paul got fed up with it. He appeals to Rome, gets on the ship. And, of course, as we've talked about in the previous verses, they ended up in a huge storm as they were sailing from Fair Havens at Crete. And they got blown up on the island of Malta. God providentially cared for them. So we start now in verses 28, verse 11. After three months, that means three months on Malta, we set sail in an Alexandrian ship that had wintered at the island, at the island of Malta. Malta is just south of Sicily, by the way, with the twin brothers as its figurehead. All right, Paul took three ships getting to Rome. He took a, what was called an Adramidian ship. Adramidian was a, was a, was a port somewhere near Troy, the Troy, in the Troy at northwestern corner of Asia Minor, and it was a coastal ship. It, it port hopped, couldn't go into the into the open sea of the Mediterranean. They took that ship from Caesarea when they got to Myra and Lycia. They took an Ale- another Alexandrian ship, the first Alexandrian ship. These ships sailed from Alexandria in Egypt where there was a bunch of grain, and they sailed to Rome because Rome was so vitally and desperately dependent on that grain trade. So there's a lot of these ships, and this is another one, another Alexandrian ship that had wintered on Malta. It was, I'm sure, carrying grain from it was its its job was to carry dr- grain from Egypt to Rome, and it had this little detail here. Luke says it had the twin brothers as fig- as its figurehead. Now these twin brothers were the famous Roman gods, Castor and Pollux. Polydeuces is his other name, Greek name, I think. Castor and Pollux. They were the two sons of Zeus. They were twins. One was mortal. One was immortal. They were the guardian deities of sailors, and that's why a lot of ships had the two twins on the masthead there. Not on the masthead, on the bow. Excuse me, on the bow. And I think it's kind of ironic that apostles of Christ are coming into pagan Rome with pagan deities on their ship. Little did they know that Castor and Pollux were going to be nothing burgers very shortly, and pretty soon the gospel of Jesus Christ was going to be worldwide, as it is to this day, 2,000 years later, and now hardly anybody knows who Castor and Pollux are. An application point here is that sometimes Christians are so surrounded by paganism that they have to use pagans' services. For example, try finding a bank that doesn't push LGBTQ, LSMFT rights, homosexual rights, which, of course, I believe in homosexual rights. They have civic rights, but they don't have the right to get married, although the Supreme Court says so. But in the eyes of God, there's no such thing as homosexual marriage. And so if you object to that, you want to take your money out, find another bank. Franklin Graham couldn't find one. It's pathetic. But at any rate, you know, sometimes we're just so surrounded by the pagan world, we need to take heart and say, look, just keep on pushing. Keep on preaching the gospel. Eventually, we are going to win, even though it looks real bad at the time. Now, it's interesting that Luke even mentioned this, the twin brothers being on the bow of the ship. 
What's the big deal? I don't know why he mentioned it, but it's one more example of how detailed Luke was in his description of what went on. He was a great historian. Now, three months, the winter season was over either late February early, or early March, as the NIV Study Bible says. Adam Clark says it's rather, rather it was the end of January, not late February, as the NIV Study Bible says. But at the end of January or the beginning of February, they took off. That date, you know, it's hard to say. But the winter season is over. And it's sailing time again. So they get on the ship. Now you say, what were they doing on an, a cargo ship? Well, Jameson, Voss, and Brown state that it's probably com- it was probably compulsory for ship owners to convey soldiers and state travelers. I wouldn't doubt that in the least. And, of course, it was the Roman soldiers that were carrying Paul up there, along with Paul's traveling companions, up to Rome. And so that's how they found the ship. We go to verse 12. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed three days. If you look at the map. Malta's a little tiny island right south of Sicily, which is the island south of Italy. And Syracuse is the major city of Sicily right there on the southeastern corner on the, on the shore of Sicily. They stayed there three days. Sicily, or, or Syracuse, was about 80 miles north of Malta, about a day's sail. Now, what did they do for those three days on, at Syracuse? They probably loaded the merchandise the ship did. And the Christians probably saw Christians there because Julius, the centurion who was in charge of Paul, was always very loose about Paul. He trusted him. Paul had just saved his life, actually, on that storm journey from from Crete to Malta. Before they left, Julius let Paul see some Christians inside at the very beginning of the journey, and he probably let them see Christians here also in Syracuse. We go to verse 13 in Acts 28. From there, that's from Syracuse, after making a circuit along the coast, we reached Regium. After one day, a south wind sprang up, and the second day we came to Puteoli. All right, Regium, if you'll look at the map of Italy and look at the toe of Italy, Regium is right there on the toe. It's right there. If the toe was a hand and the pinky, the little toe is the pinky, the ring finger, the ring toe, if I guess you could call it, would be right where Regium is. And it's on a straight, a little narrow straight that separates the toe, Regium there, the toe, and Sicily, the island, which is like the football being kicked by the foot. And that passage there is very famous in Greek mythology, the Odyssey, you know, as in the Iliad and the Odyssey, when Odysseus is coming home, he has to go through there. And what he had to do is he had to avoid the whirlpool of Charybdis and the rock of Scylla, Scylla and Charybdis, very famous place. Now, Luke says they made a circuit along the coast. Now, the King James has got a a very quaint translation of that. We fetched a compass along the coast. The commentator Ellicott says this. What this is, this is what it means. After I think it was him that said that this was somewhat obsolete, I should say. Here's what Ellicott said, quote, The wind probably being from the west, they were compelled to tack so as to stand out from the shore to catch the breeze instead of coasting. In other words, as they sailed up the coast of Sicily, they couldn't get too close to the coast of Sicily because Sicily would block the west wind that was coming from the west, and they were sailing up the east coast of Sicily. So they fetched a compass. They, they took a circuitous route, let's put it that way, and landed at Regium. Then, after one day at Regium... A south wind wind sprang up, very convenient. They were getting a lot more favorable winds now that they were in the good sailing season. And the south wind sprang up, and of course, Regium is just south of Puteoli, which is in the Bay of Naples on the west coast of Italy. 
If you look at the map, it's just a straight shot. And so after one day, they got there. And Apudioli was on the northern part of the Bay of Naples. It was several miles from Naples. It was the chief port of Rome, as the NIV Study Bible says, even though Rome was 75 miles away. I would have thought Ostia would, on the Tiber would be the chief port of Rome, but according to the NIV Study Bible, Puteoli was. Population there included Jews as well as Christians. All right, so we go to verse 14. There, this is at Puteoli, we found believers and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and so we came to Rome. So they finally got off the boats, the third ship there at Puteoli, and they went by road by foot the remaining 75 miles to Rome. Before they got started, they stayed with some fellow believers there in Puteoli. This is not surprising that there were believers there, as John Gill says, because this was a port city and people came from all over the world, sailors and such. So it's you're going to have a lot of transactions, a lot of uh, commerce and such there. And so a lot of travelers coming in. So it's not surprising there were Christians there. Now, some people could have come, Christians could have come down from Rome, but nobody knows who started the Church of Rome. It could be returnees from the Pentecost. So we don't know how the Christians got over there in Italy, but they were there. By the way, this is approximately 80, 60 or 61 or so that Paul is there 30 years after Jesus has died. But the gospel has already gotten to Rome. Once again, when they're at Puteoli, Julius let them stay with the believers for seven days. He was kind to, to Paul. Why was he so kind to Paul? He probably knew all about the the hearings and the trials that Paul had gone through in in Caesarea, because he was there when he started Paul on his journey. He was the guy that put him on the boat, and he knew that Paul was innocent. He was a Roman citizen that was innocent. He was being held because of the pressure of the Jews, and so he was kind to him. Now, Julius himself might have had business to, to attend to, or he might have had some leisure time, but at any rate, he didn't give Paul a hard time. Paul had at Puteoli time for one, at least one, maybe two Lord's Suppers, as the NIV Study Bible points out. And so he could have had time to teach and evangelize in Puteoli. We go to verse 15, Acts 28. Now the believers from there had heard the news about us and had come to meet us as far as the forum of Appius and the three taverns. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. Now, when it says the believers from there, I don't, it's not Puteoli, it means the believers from Rome. Verse 14 says, and so we came to Rome. Verse 15 says, now the believers from there, so the there is talking about Rome. They had heard the news about us. Who knows how? Maybe Paul has sent an advance party. Some of his fellow travelers, of course, were not prisoners. People like Ticus, Ticus, people like, excuse me, Aristarchus. I don't know if Ticus was with him at this point, but Aristarchus, Luke, somebody could have, have gone up and told the brothers in Rome, found them and said, hey, we've got one of the prominent apostles of the Christian church with us down here at Puteoli. And so as Paul walks up the road from Puteoli, he gets to a little town called the Forum of Appius, and the believers from Rome came down from Rome and met Paul at the Forum of Appius. It was a small town about 43 miles from Rome. It was noted for its wickedness, as the NIV Study Bible says. It was a famous resort for sailors and peddlers, as Adam Clark says. And so they meet Paul there. And of course, Paul thank God and took courage because it's always good to see a Christian brother. Remember now, he's still a prisoner going to a church that does not know him. He's never laid eyes on the people in Rome, the Christians in Rome. He had written them a letter, but he didn't. He hadn't actually met them. He went from the Forum of Appius to the next little town, which is called Three Taverns. That was 33 miles from Rome, so it's about 10 more miles up the road. And Roman believers met them there. The NIV Study Bible says it was different believers. 
I don't know how they know that exactly. I guess it's logical. You get meet, met by some believers at the form of Appius, and then you get met again, so it probably has to be a fresh set of believers. But at any rate, he meets the believers and thanks God. Now, he really is grateful here to God, and he has a reason for that because he had been wanting to go to Rome for a long time. In Romans 1.13, which was written about 57 or 58 AD, remember now it's about 61 AD or so, so you're talking about, what, three, four years later? That, uh, since he writ that, wrote that letter to the Romans, in that letter to the Romans three or four years earlier when he had written it, we read in Romans 1.13, Now I want you to know, brothers, that I often planned to come to you, but was prevented until now, in order that I might have a fruitful ministry among you, just as among the rest of the Gentiles. Rome is the capital of the world. You know, that's a great place, strategic place, to make sure that the gospel is spreading out like a hub into the spokes of a wheel. So Paul's excited. He thanks God. And it's taken him a long time to get there. He got arrested, spent two years in jail in Caesarea, went, had a horrible shipwreck. It was a miracle he even made it there. So, yeah, he ought to be excited. We go to verse 16, Acts 28. When we entered Rome, this is we again. Luke is writing the book of Acts. So when he says we, he means Luke and Paul, as well as the other traveling companions with Paul. When we entered Rome, Paul was permitted to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Now, in verse 30, we see that Paul rented a house when he got there. So we assume this is the same rented house. And he stayed, he got to stay there under house arrest. Actually, he's a little bit worse than house arrest because he had a soldier that guarded him. Some people say that soldier was chained to him the whole time. I don't think so. I believe that soldier just stayed there and watched him. He knew Paul wasn't going to run anywhere. Why were the Romans so lenient? Here's some reasons. NIV Study Bible says that Paul had committed no flagrant crime, as was obvious to everybody. He was not politically dangerous to anyone. He's not starting starting riots and sedition, as the NIV Study Bible points out. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown speculate that Paul gave security, monetary security, a bond, if you will, which would have been donated by the Roman Christians. That's an interesting speculation. Festus, in the letter accompanying Paul to Rome, had probably written of him, possibly at least, written of Paul in favorable terms, as Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown speculate. And Julius, the centurion who was in charge of him. Now, of course, that th these would be different soldiers now watching Paul in the house. But Julius knew that he was innocent. And so Julius probably, at the beginning of Paul's stay in the rented house, probably just let him stay there and say, I'm not going to worry about it. Put a soldier in there and that'll, that'll do. And Julius knew that Paul was a Roman citizen, citizen. And so did all those other soldiers who watched him knew he was a Roman citizen. So they had to be, you know, they had to show him a little bit of extra care. Now, I mentioned earlier the soldier was perhaps chained to Paul. Does the NIV study Bible and Clark speculate? Well, that's perhaps. We don't know whether they were chained to Paul or not. They were relieved periodically, as Jameson, Foster, and Brown point out, which means that Paul would get to know a lot of the Praetorian Guard there, the local police officials who were in charge of things near, near the government buildings in Rome. I'm not exactly sure where they were. But this was a great opportunity to spread the gospel Philippians 1, 12 through 13, now I want you to know, brothers, now Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians from Rome in prison. This is a prison epistle. Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has actually resulted in the advance of the gospel. When he says actually, that means you wouldn't have thought it because I was in prison and that's going to slow me down. No, it's actually contrary to what we expected. It's resulted in the advance of the gospel, not the retardation of the gospel. Verse 13. Philippians 1, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. 
The imperial guard is the Praetorian guard. It has become known, the gospel has become known throughout the whole imperial guard, guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is in the cause of Christ. So Paul just kept telling all those soldiers about Jesus. He witnessed in his circumstances, he didn't complain because he wasn't free to go out and start the gospel, start churches like he wanted to, or minister to strengthen churches. He just took his opportunities when they presented himself. Now remember, he's already spent two years in jail in Caesarea, and now he's two years under house arrest in Rome. That's a long time to be in the bonds of the government. Acts 28, verse 17, we continue. After three days, that means after three days after arriving in Rome and renting his house, he called together the leaders of the Jews. By the way, how did he rent that house? Probably from the donation of the Roman Christians. After three days, he called together the leaders of the Jews. This is the Roman Jews now. When they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, although I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our ancestors, I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. Now, Paul is probably trying to preempt criticism. He probably figures he's got a bad reputation. People have already gone started talking about him, says the Jews put him in jail and sent him to the Romans. It's, the, it's Paul's fault. It's Paul's fault because the Jews in Jerusalem know what they're talking about. And, of course, Paul's got chains, as he says, in a little while he's got chains around his arm. Whether there's a soldier attached to the chain or not is, is not relevant. Is irrelevant because he did have chains, which means people with chains usually don't have a good reputation. They're usually criminals. So Paul called together the leaders of the Jews. Paul, by now, I'm sure, has become very notorious all throughout Judaism, although these particular Jews weren't aware of the charges in Jerusalem, but Paul himself was notorious. I mean, you know, so he's going to call the Jews to get to, together, and he's going to say, I'm innocent, guys. I didn't do anything, so let's don't slander my reputation while I'm here in Rome. Now we might ask a question, why are the Jews here? Isn't it true that in A.D. 49, the Emperor Claudius had expelled the Jews? That's a very famous expulsion. In fact, that's how Aquila and Priscilla ended up in Corinth. They got kicked out of Rome because they were Jews. Well, that decree had lapsed by now. That was 49 when the decree was made. It's now 60 or 61. And so the Jews had returned to Rome, as the NIV study Bible points out. It's not clear whether these Jews were organized into synagogues or not. Clark says they were. Gill says, I don't know, Doesn't we don't know. Although they had been banished by Claudius, they had benefited much from tolerance before. They were a legal religion, if you recall. The government let them alone. They didn't make them bow down to Caesar. So in the first part of Nero's reign, they uh, were, to were tolerated also. This is after Claudius. They had considerable numbers, and wealth, and influence, according to Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. Notice that Paul addresses them as brothers. Now, this does not mean they're Christians, of course. They're Jewish brothers, because Paul was Jewish just like the Jews in Rome were Jewish. He called them brothers just like he called Christians brothers. He emphasized the common bond with them, as the NIV Study Bible points out. He's, he uses good communication techniques. He also called the Jews brothers when he was before the rioting Jerusalem temple mob in Acts 22, verse 1. He said, as the mob raged in front of him, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And then it, when he was taken before the council, sent before the Sanhedrin by the Roman commander, Claudius Lysias, Paul says this in Acts 23, verse 1, and looking intently at the council, at the Sanhedrin, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up until this day, up to this day. So Paul called those nasty, bigoted, lynch mob Jews, called them brothers. I don't know what application we can make out of that, but I think it means you need to be polite before people who could who could cut your head off. 
This verse says that Paul was in Rome three days before he got the Jews together to hear him for one day. Those three days were probably spent in resting, hiring a house, renting a house. Why did Paul ask the Jews to come to his house rather than going to where the Jews were? Well, because remember, Paul's under arrest. He just can't go wandering around where he wants to. And he probably wanted to act proactively to stop prejudice against them. So he says, look, here's my house. Come see me. We go to verse 18 of Acts 28. After they examined me, Paul is talking about the Romans, examined him, namely Felix and Festus in Caesarea. After they examined me, they wanted to release me since I had not committed a capital offense. Obviously, Paul was innocent. He hadn't done a thing. Now, I mentioned Felix and Festus, but there was also the original commander, Claudius Lysias, that wanted to release him. And then there's Felix, and then there's Festus. And also, Festus let him have an extra hearing before Herod Agrippa II, the local king of Israel there, Roman kinglet, if we can call him that. And all of these guys, all four of them said they were innocent. This could be summed up in Acts 26, 30-32. So the king, that's Herod Agrippa II, the governor, the current governor then was Festus, this is about 59 A.D., 58, 59 A.D. The governor Festus, Bernice, that's Festus's sister, and those sitting with them got up. This is after the hearing before Herod Agrippa II. And when they had left, they talked with each other and said, this was after Paul said, I appeal to Caesar. They talked with each other and said, this man is doing nothing that deserves death or chains. Then Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been released if he had not appealed to Caesar. So you see, it's obvious he was innocent. Everybody knew he was innocent. The Roman officials knew he was innocent. And now Paul is trying to convince the Jews of Rome that he's innocent. Verse 19 of Acts 28. Because the Jews objected, that means the Jews not in Rome now, but the Jews in Jerusalem. Because the Jews in Jerusalem objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar. In other words, I should have been let loose, but they objected to me being let loose, so I had no choice. I had to appeal to Caesar. It was not as though I had any accusation against my nation. In other words, I'm not coming here to accuse the Jews of anything. I'm here purely on the defensive. I was forced to be, come here because if I'd been, if, if the Romans had let me out in Caesarea, what would have happened? I would have been assassinated. Remember, the Jews tried twice to assassinate him, once on the way to the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem and once from Caesarea going back to Jerusalem. Well, it was a, a, an, attempted, uh, an attempt to get Paul to be sent back from Caesarea to Jerusalem. I think it was by Felix, if I remember correctly. And they had hired assassins to assassinate Paul on the road. So these people were murderers. I don't know why Paul doesn't mention that. seems to me, I would say, you know, they tried to kill me, doggone it. I guess he doesn't want to get them upset because the Jews have a lot of prestige. The Jerusalem Jews, the Sanhedrin, had a lot of prestige in, amongst the Jews. And Paul didn't want to get the Roman Jews upset by saying bad things about the Jerusalem Jews. But anyway, he says, look, I'm not here on the offense. I was forced to be here. I didn't want to get get. If I had not appealed, I either would have stayed in prison forever if the Romans had kept me there, or if they'd let me out, the Jews would have assassinated me. That's basically his argument. Now, he doesn't say that, but and maybe he did say it, and Luke just didn't record it. I don't know. Acts verse 20, Acts chapter 28, verse 20. Paul continues before the Roman Jews. For this reason, I've asked to see you and speak to you. In fact, it is for the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. In other words, he doesn't mention the gospel of Jesus Christ. That might get him a little upset. He says it's for the hope of Israel because Jesus is the hope of Israel. But he, he focuses on what the hearers need to hear. I, I'm giving you hope for Israel. That's messianic hope, guys. And that's why I'm wearing this chain. I'm not wearing this chain because I'm a criminal. I'm wearing this chain because I preached Jesus and I got arrested by the Jews. The Jews turned me over to the Romans. That's why I'm wearing this chain. It's for the hope of Israel. 
Now, again, Paul is in a difficult spot, of course, trying to convince these hard-headed Jews who have all their traditions, and he's coming there as a prisoner, so that doesn't look good. He's got to explain that chain away. The hope of Israel, as the NLA Study Bible says, that Paul is preaching, that Paul had the chains because of, the hope of Israel would be, God, would be God's kingdom, would be the Messiah, would be the resurrection, just basically the Messiah who established that kingdom and who resurrected in order to establish the kingdom. Paul is pointing out that, look, I'm not speaking to you Jews for me. I'm speaking to the Jews because of the hope of Israel. That's why I'm speaking to you. He makes the point, look, if I had, if I would never have been arrested if I, for anything, except for the fact that I was preaching to the Jews for the hope of Israel. That's why I'm wearing this change. Not from anything personal that I've done. I wasn't doing anything for my own benefit. I'm trying to help you guys out, trying to tell you about the Messiah. Now, when Paul says that I'm wearing this chain again, he could have been a chain to a soldier. He could have been loose from the chain, loose from the soldier, actually. The chain would stay on his arm, and when the soldier wanted to chain himself to Paul, he would just hook up his end of the chain. We don't know. But I'm sure that Paul's referring to it because the Jews might have been thinking, hey, if you're so innocent, why are you wearing this chain? And Paul's aware of that. So he says, that's why I'm wearing this chain for the hope of Israel, not because I'm a criminal. Acts 28, verse 21, then they, that's Jerusalem Jews, said to him, we haven't received any letters about you from Judea. None of the brothers has come and reported and spoken anything evil about you. Well, that's good news. Apparently the Jews in Jerusalem, after two years, had given up on the case. They realized they didn't have a case. They've already tried with Felix. They tried with Festus. They're not, Herod Agrippa didn't help them out. There's nothing can help them out, so they just gave up. And, of course, what the Roman Jews are talking about, none of the brothers has come. That, that means the Jerusalem Jews who were their brothers. None of the Jerusalem Jews has come and reported or spoken anything evil about you. Now, John Gill says they might not have said anything relating to Paul's particular case, but they might have said something about Paul in general. This guy's going around upsetting the Jewish religion. Paul, of course, is notorious at this time. However, John Gill says that even so, that if the Jews might have said something about him in general, what the the Roman Jews are saying here that Paul has a good reputation, even among the Jerusalem Jews, which is another proof of his innocence. So the Roman Jews here are helping Paul out, and they kind of say, yeah, 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 you're right. You haven't done anything. We haven't heard anything that you've done, so we believe you. Now, I said just now that the reason the Jerusalem Jews had not sent letters to the Roman Jews talking about Paul's guilt is because they had just given up. They hadn't been able to kill him, so they just gave up. But some people say that the Jews were hiding the truth from Paul, that actually they had sent letters to the Roman Jews, and the Roman Jews were lying to Paul, trying to set him up so they could trap him later, keep it, put him off his guard so, they could, so Paul would think, well, they, they don't think I'm guilty, so I can just say what I want. I think that's a stretch, in my humble opinion. I don't think so. I think they were sincerely convinced of Paul's innocence. We go to verse 22 in Acts 28. But we, that's the Roman Jews, would like to hear from you, Paul, what you think. For concerning this sect, we are aware that it is spoken against everywhere. Now, Paul might have a good reputation, but Christians did not. It was spoken against everywhere. Everybody's, you know, they're making up these lies. Oh, they're having a love feast. Oh, they're in, and they call each other brothers and sisters. Therefore, they're having incestuous orgies, having sex with their own brothers and sisters. And it's at night where they're hiding. And they're actually eating human flesh. They're eating babies and all this nonsense. And they, and they want to start a revolution against the Roman Empire. So yeah, Christian Christianity was spoken against everywhere, just like it is right now in the universe in the United States of America. You hate homosexuals. That's funny. We're not accused of hating adulterers. 
but we're accused of hating homosexuals because we say, you know, homosexuality is going to kill you. It's going to destroy you spiritually because it's not the way God made you. Oh, you hate people. You hate homosexuals. So there's nothing new in the history of Christianity for Christianity to be, to be spoken against. But these Jewish, these Roman Jews were open-minded enough to want to hear more about this sect. Now, that sect sounds kind of negative. It's interesting, the Greek word is even, if literally translated, would be even more negative. The Greek word is iresin, the accusative, I think. Well, I'm not sure. What, what, never mind. The, the, the form that I've got here is iresin, iresin, which literally transliterated is heresy. And the Holman Christian Study Bible translates it as sect. Now, sect has a negative connotation. We talk about sects in America. We talk about the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, people who've trashed Orthodox Christianity by violating the Nicene Creeds and such, denying major fundamental tenets of the, of the gospel. But this Greek word back then could very well have been used neutrally. It could be pejorative, but it could also be neutral. And, for example, here's Acts 5.17. But the high priest rose up along with all his associates, that is, the sect of the Sadducees. Well, Luke is writing about the sect of the Sadducees. I don't think he was being pejorative there. He was just saying that that's one of the parties in Israel. In fact, as Adam Clark points out, Josephus calls his sect... His faction, his party, the Pharisees, he was a Pharisee, he calls the Pharisees a sect. And he would be running down his own party if sect had a negative connotation. So when the Jews, Jews of Rome here call Christians a sect, it doesn't necessarily, they're, they're being nasty to Paul, okay? Not necessarily. Could be, could be. They were speaking of it pejoratively, saying this is a, a deviation from Orthodox Judaism. We want to hear what you've got to say to defend yourself, Paul. It could be, but I don't think so. I think he's just saying, hey, tell us about this new party of Judaism that we've heard so much about. Verse 23, Acts 28. After arranging a day with him, many came to him in his lodging. So Paul has one day. From dawn to dusk, he expounded and witnessed about the kingdom of God. He tried to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets. He used the Hebrew scriptures because... The Jews in Rome believed in the Hebrew Scriptures. He had a common ground. This is common communication technique. Of course, you're going to use the Old Testament prophecies to convince people of the Messiah, and there's plenty of them. How about Jesus being born in Bethlehem? How about Emmanuel? How about the Isaiah? What is that? Isaiah 9, then Isaiah 7:14, the virgin shall conceive. And then how about Isaiah 53, the suffering servant? There's lots of Old Testament prophecies. How about the branch of Jesse? On and on and on and on. So Paul spent all day, and of course Paul knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards. He was a Hebrew scholar, and so he's witnessing to the Jews. Verse 24, Acts 28. Some were persuaded, some of these Roman Jews were persuaded by what he, what, by what Paul said, but others did not believe. So here they were listening to the best teaching in the history of the Christian church, and they didn't believe. Application point here is it shows that it takes more than good teaching to convert sinners. It is our job to preach the gospel to all. It is up to Holy Spirit to convict the elect. We don't know who the elect are, so we just do the best we can and leave it up to God to save who he's going to save, and he will save. But here, as usual, there's opposition to what Paul is speaking. Here's what John Gill <laughs> says about the group that he was witnessing to. Quote, they were, quote, they were a, quote, Promiscuous assemblage of sincere and earnest inquirers after truth. Frivolous worldlings and prejudiced bigots. In other words, some of the guys were sincere and wanted to hear the truth, and some of them were just prejudiced bigots. We go to verse 25, 6, and 7 in Acts 28. Disagreeing among themselves, the 
Roman Jews, they began to leave after Paul made one statement. This is where they had had enough. Paul says this, he's quoting from Isaiah 6, verses 9 through 10. Quote, The Holy Spirit correctly spoke through the prophet Isaiah to your ancestors when he said, Go to these people and say, You will listen and listen, yet never understand, and you will look and look, yet never perceive. For the hearts of these people have grown callous, their ears are hard of hearing, and they have shut their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and be converted, and I would heal them. Now, you know, I tell you, Paul is a brave guy. People don't listen to your gospel, and then you just dump on them. Oh, and he dumped on them with the Isaiah, one of the great Hebrew prophets. It's so, I love that. Of course, you know, Jesus did the same thing in Matthew 13. He says this, for this reason, I, this is Matthew 13, verses 13 through 15. For this reason, I speak to them in parables, because looking they do not see, and hearing they do not listen or understand. Isaiah's prophecy is fulfilled of them, this same prophecy in Isaiah 6, 9 through 10. You will listen and listen, yet never understand. You will look and look and never perceive. This people's heart has grown callous. Their ears are hard of hearing. They've shut their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn back, and I would cure them. That's basically a straight quote. Jesus laid it on the unbelieving Jews when he was ministering, and we could look at the same thing in a different instance. This is near right after Palm Sunday at some time when people weren't listening to Jesus, John 12, 38 through 48. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Who has who has believed our message? Who has the arm of the Lord been revealed to? They were unable to believe because Isaiah also said he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, so they would not see with their eyes or understand. And of course, this doesn't mean that God took people who were longing for the gospel and blinded their eyes. It means he took people and judicially punished them. He blinded their eyes because they willingly and voluntarily chose to turn it back on the Lord of the universe. So this disagreement, some believed, some did not, this is very common. That's the usual effect of gospel ministry. What did Jesus say? Luke 12, verse 51. Do you think I came here to give peace to the earth? He's talking to people who are expecting this Jewish messianic kingdom to be shortly arriving. And Jesus says, oh, really? You think I came here to give peace to the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. These early disciples didn't realize what was coming. Lots of persecution, lots of trouble. Now, they were disagreeing, and I was, I'm assuming that they were disagreeing about whether Jesus was the Messiah or was he not the Messiah. Some people say they might be disagreeing with the manner of Paul's reasoning, but they were still open to the fact that Jesus might be the Messiah. Or it could be they were disagreeing about resurrection existed. The old de debate between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that division was probably still there amongst the Roman Jews. I'm just going to say they were debating over who this Jesus was. Was he the Messiah? Well, anyway, Paul lays into him. Paul never pulled his punches. They leave, at least the non-believing ones leave, left. Isaiah, when he says, you will look and look and not see, Gil makes that specific and says, look, you're going to look and see miracles with your eyes, but you're not going to see. You're not going to understand in your heart so that you can be healed, so that you can be forgiven of your sins. Acts 28, verses 28 and 29. Therefore, Paul continues speaking to the Jews as they're on their way out. Therefore, let it be known to you that this saving work of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Of course, there's an implied rebuke there. You guys are so hard-hearted, you're not going to listen. But by golly, the Gentiles will listen. I am just amazed how confident Paul was in his message. He never showed any signs of weakness or compromise. And, of course, going to the Gentiles is one of the key themes of the New Testament. I mean, it shows up all the time. For example, in Acts, Paul was called the apostle to the Gentiles. It's the main thought of the book of Acts is leaving the Jewish ministry and preaching out to the Gentiles, as the NIV Study Bible says, 
Here's an example at Pisidian Antioch on the first journey, Acts 13, 46 through 48. Then Paul and Barnabas boldly said, it was necessary that God's message be spoken to you first, to you Antiochian, Pisidian Antiochian Jews. But since you reject it and consider yourselves unworthy of eternal life, in other words, because you want to go to hell, we now turn to the Gentiles. Well, this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, this is the Gentiles in Pisidian Antioch, they rejoiced and glorified the message of the Lord. And all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. Ooh, that's a nice Calvinist verse. All who had been appointed to eternal life. In other words, you ain't going to believe unless you've first been appointed. But I won't get into any theology here. Let's look at Acts 18.6. Again, looking at the idea of Paul turning from the Jews, going to the Jews first, the Jews rejecting, the, and then turning to the Gentiles. This is at Corinth on the second journey. Acts 18.6. But when they resisted and blasphemed the Corinthian Jews... He, Paul, shook his robe and told them, Your blood is on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So Paul, he was used to nasty reactions from his brothers, the Jews. He was used to that. And he just let them hold it. Now, when Paul says the Gentiles will listen, he doesn't mean that they will just listen to his gospel message and then weigh it, consider it, and then reject it. That word listen means listen and obey. Akuain is the Greek infinitive there. It not only means to hear, but to hear and obey. That, that reminds me of the Chinese word for obey is ting hua. Ting is to hear and hua is word. So if you, a child hears the words of his parents, it doesn't mean that the child just listens to the parents say, don't put your hand in the cookie jar. It means the child hears the word and he doesn't put his hand in the cookie jar. It's exactly what the Chinese means. And that's what the Greek means here. So he says they're going to listen. What, he, what Paul is saying is they're going to listen and believe and obey. Verse 29 is in brackets in my Holman Christian Study Bible. The NIV leaves it out completely, puts it in the margin because of manuscript or lack of manuscript testimony. I'll read that. Verse 29, after he said these things, the Jews departed while engaging in a prolonged debate among themselves. And of course, that doesn't add anything. It doesn't subtract anything from what we already know. Like most of these textual variants, 99% of them doesn't affect a darn thing. So I'm not going to talk about that. We go to verses 8, uh, 30 and 31 in Acts chapter 28. Then he, this is Paul, stayed two whole years in his own rented house. That same rented house he, he rented in the, first, in the first three days that he got there. Paul stayed two whole years. So now we're up to, what, 63 or so? And he welcomed all who visited him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching the things concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with full boldness and without hindrance. Nobody bothered him after all this time he was under house arrest but he was still preaching he was why for two years he was waiting for his accusers to press his child in rome as the niv study bible points out and as they also point out paul put the weight to good use preaching the gospel what happened after those two years well now that we're at the end of this is the last these are the last verses in the book of acts and so we're at the end of the book and what happened to paul later well that's that's debated there are those who say he was probably probably released from his imprisonment which means that a so-called fourth missionary journey occurred this is the niv study bible's position i think that's probably the majority view there's another view that says he was probably martyred right after he got out of jail there this is what john gill believes well what are the what is the evidence since we don't have luke telling us what's the evidence that paul kept on preaching the gospel after he got released well because acts stops so suddenly now, why would this indicate Paul's release? 
because if Paul was killed or tried, Luke certainly would have recorded it, wouldn't you think? So it sounds like it's not the end of the story yet. Paul still got some more preaching to do. Another piece of evidence that a so-called fourth missionary journey occurred, that Paul was not martyred after Acts 28 verse 31, is that Paul wrote churches saying he was coming to see them soon. For example, Philippians 2.24, I am convinced in the Lord that I myself will also come quickly. Philemon 1.22, but meanwhile also prepare a guest room for me, for I hope that through your prayers I will be restored to you. Well, yeah, he hoped, but see, that's not the same thing as saying I'm definitely coming. That's not the same thing as saying he came. It meant he might have intended to come, but then he got martyred before he had a chance to go. So I don't think that's exactly real strong evidence. Here's a third piece of evidence that Paul continued on without being martyred after he, is, after he left Rome. There's a number of details in the pastorals that don't fit in with Acts, as the NIV Study Bible said. And these details indicate a return of Paul to Asia Minor, Crete, and Greece. Well, that's stuff for New Testament PhDs in New Testament studies. I'm just telling you what the NIV Study Bible says. I don't have enough knowledge to know one way or the other myself. And the fourth piece of evidence that says that Paul continued on with his ministry, as the NIV Study Bible gives it, is that tradition indicates that Paul went to Spain. And the NIV Study Bible concedes or, or says that even if Paul didn't go to Spain, there's other tradition that indicates that Paul was actually set free from prison. So I don't know how strong that tradition is. Again, that's for scholars to debate. I'm going to assume that he got out of jail just to be a little bit more optimistic about it. It sounds like there's a good bit of evidence that he did get out of jail and kept on going. Now, what happened during the two years that he was in jail? Well, he got converts even in the Palace of Nero, which is probably where the Praetorium Guard was headquartered. The, uh, uh, in, uh, the NIV Study Bible quotes two verses to show this, Philippians 1, 12 through 13. Now, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has actually resulted in the advance of the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is in the cause of Christ. I've already quoted that verse. How did his, how did the gospel get known to all the imperial guard? Because the soldiers were watching Paul and they would relieve each other and rotate in and out. And pretty soon everybody knows about the cause of Christ at the highest levels. Philippians 4.22, all the saints greet you but especially those from Caesar's household. Caesar's household, that's high up in the, in the government. Now, during that two years that Paul was in, in his house in Rome, we see that Epaphroditus came from Philippi and gave financial assistance. Philippians 2.25. But I considered it necessary, Paul says to the Philippians, necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, as well as your messenger and minister to my need. Now, why did Paul have to wait two years to get his case heard or dismissed? I'm assuming he got it dismissed and he wasn't martyred, wasn't executed. Well, it could be because Nero was noted for being slow, hearing only one charge at a time. It just Nero delayed the case, took forever to hear the case. Justice delayed is justice denied, as we say. Notice that what Paul is doing in this house for two years, he's proclaiming the kingdom of God. And so now Luke finishes the book in the same way that he started it. In Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, we read this. I wrote the first narrative, that's the book of Luke, Luke says, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, after he had given orders through the Holy Spirit and to the apostle through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God of God. So you see, that's what Jesus preached. He preached the kingdom. He talked about the kingdom much more than he talked about 
ecclesia, the church, the kingdom. So what Jesus did during the 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension, those 40 days, he was teaching the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus preached before the ascent, before the uh, those 40 days, before the ascension, after the resurrection. He preached it in Luke 4:43. He said to them, I must proclaim the good news about the kingdom of God to other towns also, because I was sent for this purpose. God is establishing a kingdom. He's the king. We are the subjects. And that's good news. Who stayed with him in his house? John Gill says Luke was probably there, Aristarchus and others. Adam Clark says Timothy was probably there with him. Jameson Fawcett and Brown say Tychicus was probably there. John Mark, at different times, not all at the same time. Tychicus, John Mark, Demas, Epaphras, Onesimus. Jesus called Justice. This, of course, you gather from the, not the salutation, the closings, the closings of letters that Paul wrote in his prison epistles. But staying in your house under house arrest instead of going to jail was a special privilege because the Romans knew that Paul was innocent. Ladies and gentlemen, we have finished the book of Acts. I hope you enjoyed it. We're taking up Romans next. Hope you stay tuned for Romans 1. And I hope you enjoyed this audio.